Amen. If you turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, then you'll be joining with me where we're at in our sermon series this morning. <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about this Sunday morning, and I thought for a while about what to preach, and I decided that I wasn't going to uh, go anywhere else besides where we're at in our sermon series, and I decided that a long time ago. I decided wherever the Lord puts us, wherever we're at, wherever I'm at in the sermon series, that's where I'll stay. That's where I'll preach. I'm not going to turn to some slam dunk home run passage and try to really wow the congregation or really surprise everyone. And I'll tell you, part of the reason that I am feeling this way this morning, you know, you might think and wonder um, from a pastoral perspective, am I nervous? And I wanted to read to you two verses from scripture, James Chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And then Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. I thought I'd read those verses of scripture to you this morning because I'm nervous every Sunday that I preach God's word. I'm nervous every time that I teach God's word. I'm nervous because there's a high calling in scripture upon the lives of those, not just me, but men who are in pulpits faithfully serving the Lord this morning all around. Sunday school teachers who taught already this morning in this church family. Believers in Christ to encourage one another with God's word. There's a high calling for those who are willing and able to step forward with the truth of God's word. So I'm nervous every Sunday because I want to preach faithfully to you what God says. I want to study this passage in Ephesians chapter 1. I want to know what God meant and I want to present that to you in a way that will help you to remember and help you to leave this Sunday morning knowing God's word better. And so that is why I'm nervous, not because of the situation or the time in our church family. I'm honored by that. I'm encouraged by that. And I've preached many a sermon from this pulpit and stood here with you, my church family. So I'm not nervous about that. What I'm nervous about is getting in God's way. And may I never do that. And may we not have that this morning. So turn with me in Ephesians chapter 1 as we seek to know exactly what he would have for us to know from his word. So open your Bible. We'll start, we'll continue our series in Ephesians where we've been learning about rich doctrine, rich living. Ephesians is one of the books in the Bible that reminds us as believers in Christ, you are rich. You're rich. Not how the world sees riches, not how everyone else seems rich, sees riches, but... You are rich in Jesus Christ. And as we look specifically this morning at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, I think it's kind of interesting that to perfectly illustrate the sermon, I want to talk to you about a man who was very, 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 very rich. <laughs> to put it um, mildly. This man is named William Hurst. I don't know if we have any historians. Who knows that name? Is anybody out in the audience? Okay, so we know that name. Uh, William Hurst, I didn't know him. Sorry for all of you who did. <laughs> but I know now a little bit more, and I know that he, he used to own one of the most expensive houses on the market in the United States today in Hollywood, California. Um, beautiful home, immaculate home. And he called, I think they called it the um, Hurst Castle when he owned it. But it's a beautiful home. And he was a, a, 
a newspaper publisher in the early 1900s. He, had, he dabbled in newspaper. He also dabbled in radio then as it came. And he even, before he passed away, and uh, was part of the early stages and steps of television. But he was a major news conglomerate owner. And so he was an extremely wealthy man. His newspaper, radio, and print programs, and then even TV investments made him extraordinarily wealthy. And one piece of his wealth was that he had a taste for art and history. And so he had a very large art and historical, do, historical uh, documents or objects, historic, historical treasures. He had a huge warehouse, warehouses full of items that he had secured and purchased. It was his hobby. He was a hobby collector of artifacts, treasures, things that you see like in the movies where people are going after and trying to steal and rob. That was him. He owned things like that. And so there's one really famous story that I want to focus on from William Hurst this morning uh, about his art collection. The famous story goes like something like this, that he was looking through a, a publications paper and he found in this publication a piece of art that he really, really wanted. And it was just this beautiful collector's piece, and he thought, man, it would be really exciting to have that. So he, he wondered to himself, how can I do this? I'm a busy man. It's overseas. I'm not going to have time. So he, 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 got, he brought in his agent. And he sent his agent overseas and basically gave him no restrictions. You go overseas. You find the piece of art. Get that piece of art at whatever cost. I don't care what it takes. You come back here, and you better come back with a piece of art. And so his agent does. He goes overseas, and he goes to find that piece of art. And, real, and he thought to himself, this is, you know, I'm sure, I'm thinking, he's thinking to himself, this is great. Cost isn't an issue. It's a nice vacation. I'll go, maybe I'll spend a couple extra days finding it. But the agent went, and he spent many months overseas and was not able to find the piece of art that William Hurst wanted. He went here, he went there, he went to collectors, he traveled around in the, in the different areas that might have possibly been. He followed clue after clue and hunch after hunch from these other collectors who were pointing him in directions that could have been. And it took him months. And, and William Hurst probably, that's part, it's not part of the story, but I'm sure he was getting a little anxious. And the agent's probably getting anxious, like I'm spending my boss's money, I'm staying in hotels, I'm going all over the world traveling, I'm not finding this piece of art. And finally, one day, William Hurst got a call from overseas from his agent, and it would have gone something like this as the story is told. Sir, I found that piece of art, and I have amazing news for you. It won't cost you a thing. And William Hurst, on the other end of the phone, as you know, wealthy people, they're just as excited to get a bargain and as a deal as we are. He was excited. He said, well, great. That's amazing news. But why is it going to cost me anything? Well, as I searched for the art, I found that you already own it. <laughs> and it's in your warehouse. And it's in a box. And it's stored in your collection room. What happened to William Hurst is, it's funny, it is funny to think of the fact that he did that, that he sent out his agent looking for that piece of art that he couldn't find. But what happened to William Hurst was that he had such a great treasure in his eyes, 
but he had forgotten about it. He owned this great and amazing treasure, and he wasted time and resource trying to find what was already available to him all along. And this morning, as we investigate God's word, you and I are going to realize that sometimes the same can be true of us. We have a great treasure, but sometimes we waste time and resource because we don't access what already belongs to us. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 with me, and we'll read God's word aloud together this morning. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great, great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Bow in a word of prayer with me. Lord, we thank you for the text this morning. We pray and ask as we investigate it. You help us to be reminded of the riches you've given to us. And may we not forget. Thank you, Father, for this text. Use it in our lives this morning so we know you better. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The first thing we see is my, in my outline this morning, if you have a copy of your sermon notes and you can follow along with me, you're on the right track. And what's the right track? It's faith. Verses 15 through 16 are rather abrupt because Paul, in the Greek, all of chapter 1 is one giant, big, long, run-on sentence. And so in the NIV and the English, they kind of split it up for us to help so we can understand it better and, and in our own modern context know it better. But Paul has been launching and he has not stopped. He's, he's literally probably not picked up his pen. And as he's writing all of this exciting things that he's given to us in chapters and verses 1 through 14, partway through what Paul wants to do is I think he probably realized that he was giving them a lot of info. He was giving them a lot of information. And we've preached, I've preached now a couple different sermons to be able to digest all that info. It took me two sermons to be able to go through what he did in 1 through 14. And so he's, I think he's starting to realize that. That this is a lot for the believer to take in. And so right in the middle, I need to encourage them. So in the middle of his run-on sentence, in the middle of that, he says to them this, verses 15 through 16, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, 
I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He pauses for a brief moment to acknowledge their faith. For this reason, verse 15, for this reason, what reason? All of verses 1 through 14. Because of all of what I laid out in 1 through 14, the rich doctrine he lays out, for all of that, their called status, the fact that they were predestined before the Lord, their blessings that they have, the adoption they have as children because of their redemption, their forgiveness from sin, because of the wisdom and understanding that God gives them, because of the knowledge of the mystery we talked about last week, because they were sealed in the Spirit, because they have a mighty inheritance, because of all of that, for this reason, Paul says, ever since I heard you have that faith that I laid out in 1 through 14, I gave thanks for you. They had that faith. They had the faith. And Paul is going to point out here in this first two opening opening verses that would have been easy for me to gloss over. Really, it could have been. But it's important. Because what he says to them is, you're on the right track. You guys who believe in the Lord Jesus and 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 the church in Ephesus, you guys are on the right track track. How does he know? How does he present to them that they're on the right track of faith? What are they doing? They're doing two things in particular that Paul notices that aren't going to come as a surprise to any of you. Their love of God and their love of others. That's what they're doing. Verse 15, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. Your faith in Jesus, which translates to our loving relationship with the Lord as well, that faith and trust in the one who died for our sins. Your love for God, because of your faith, your love for others. That's what he says. You know what? I've, I've recognized, I see your faith in the Lord, I see the way you love, I heard about it, and I, I'm acknowledging to you that because of that, because of the way you've chosen to love God and love others, Paul acknowledges them. And he suggests to them that they're on the right track. Specifically, their vertical relationship with God was somehow evident. Why? Because he heard about their faith. From someone in his circles, from someone in his ministry relationships, Paul had all these missionaries that worked in in coexistence with him and his team. He had all these brothers and sisters in Christ in in the churches. And so because he had heard about their faith in the Lord. And I, when I did the intro sermon, I mentioned to you that Paul preached there and then he left. And then before, when he was headed back to go and eventually be imprisoned, he stopped. And he met with the elders of the church. They met him, not in Ephesus, but they came and met him at a seaport. So this is what he's talking about. I heard about your faith from them. Now he's writing this letter from prison all that time later. And he's saying, I heard that when I left, you guys continued in the faith. You continued to love God. You continued to love others. I heard about that. It was evident and apparent. And their love for the believers, their love for each other was evident. It sounds like 
what they had done is they had done a really good job of something Paul had probably already taught them. Paul was limited in what he could preach and teach at this point. He didn't have Ephesians. He couldn't go back and preach to them what he already taught to them. He's teaching them this for the first time. So instead, what did he have? What material did Paul have to work with? Well, he had the Gospels and the stories that were expressed and the verses that were shared in the Gospels. So perhaps, and this is the encouragement, perhaps Paul preached this sermon to them. Maybe he preached, maybe he preached to them a sermon that included Mark 12, verses 30 through 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment. There's no commandment greater than these. Perhaps Paul had preached that sermon to them in, in Ephesus, standing on the streets, and he told them, here is the two focuses of faith. Love the Lord your God. Get to know him. Love him with your heart. Love him with your mind. Use your strength to honor him. And then, love your neighbor. He probably preached that sermon to them. He probably encouraged them with that word. And so, as a result, Paul is re reaching out to them in verse 15. And he's saying, I heard about your faith that you kept these two things. It's been said, and it's, it's a quite memorable thing. You can trim down the Christian faith to this. And all of you know, love God, love others. Love God, love others. And that is exactly what they were doing. And because that's exactly what they were doing in their church family, Paul can't help but, in verse 16, tell them and remind them and let them know that he is praying and praising. Verse 16, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. At first glance, blow by blow, that praise piece, that looks like maybe I would be talking about Paul's praising them. You realize who Paul's actually praising? Look at that verse one more time. I've not stopped giving thanks for you to God. He's talking to God. It's a prayer relationship with God. And, and Paul says, I've not stopped giving thanks. I've not stopped praising God because what he has done in your life. It's not, I've, he hasn't, he's not saying here, kudos to you, you're doing a great job. He says, I've not stopped giving thanks. Who's he giving thanks to? Jesus, God the Father. He's praying. And he's praying and praising God for what he's done in the lives of the believers. Of course, he, he is also, in verse 15, encouraging them. That's verse 15 is about them. You've done a good job. You've loved God. You've loved others. And as a result, I can't stop praising Jesus. I can't stop saying thank you to him for what he's done in your life. He is amazing. He's the one who's done it. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. His prayer is two-parted. He praises God for their spiritual maturity. 
And he also prays with them and prays for them that the rest of our sermon this morning would be true of them. What does he pray? We'll go on to see. But at this first part of, of Ephesians 15 and 16, it would just have been easy for me to have not preached them. But I think it's very important because Paul makes a commitment to the church that he loves to praise God for what he's done in their lives. You've loved God. You've loved others. I can speak on behalf of me and me alone, but I have seen this church family love God. And I've seen you love others. I'm not Paul. I'm not the apostle. I can't echo everything he's echoing here, but certainly I can say to you that as a church family, this church at Calvary Baptist Church tries their hardest to love God and love others. And so this morning, the rest of Paul's prayer then, that's for us just as much as the first part is. Because you, you know in your own heart how well you're doing at loving God and loving others. Maybe you need to work on that this morning. But the rest of this sermon is for you. It results in prayer and praise. And what's Paul's prayer? What's Paul's prayer for this church that he loves, for these people that he knows, for these people he wants to encourage in a church that he loves? His encouragement to them is this. Now stay on track. You were on track. You've been on track. Now stay on track. Know him well. I titled the sermon this morning, Knowing Him. Knowing Him. We want to know God and know God well. And that's exactly the prayer that Paul is going to pray to and for the believers. He is going to write out his prayer for them. I think that's powerful. This is a prayer in the Bible. We're going to see how an apostle would be praying to God for people. He writes it. He writes out their, the prayer that he's praying. And he wants them to know, this is how I'm praying for you. Paul's prayer in verses 17 through 13 deals with the believers knowing God well. Now, if you wait a minute and pause right there, you might be thinking to yourself, wasn't Paul just explaining in 1 through 14 all the rich blessings from God, from Jesus, from the Holy Spirit. So why would he stop here and pray that he, they would know God well? He's already been explaining God to them. He's already been telling them about God. Here's the reason. Paul's concern for the church is this. They might have understood the facts about God. They might have understood the facts that we taught last week about Jesus. They might have understood the facts about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works. They might have understood those things. But Paul's concern is, do they know him? Do they know him? Do they know? You can understand something without knowing it. And that's what we're going to take a look at the rest of the sermon this morning. The first thing we see from Paul is a request for wisdom and revelation. 
Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, he's, he's asking that God would do something amazing. The one who gave Jesus, he's asking that he would do something. What's he asking? That he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation so that you may know him better. Paul's making this request to the, for the believers. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be able to obtain anything from God. But through the Holy Spirit, we can have wisdom and revelation. And Paul is praying and asking that God would send that spirit. Send a spirit of wisdom and revelation to these believers. They need it. They have the Holy Spirit inside of them. Now they need God's help from the Holy Spirit to give them wisdom and revelation. Wisdom in this passage is the Greek word Sophia which translates to having insight to the true nature of how things work. So he prays that they would have true insight to how things work, wisdom, and revelation is speaking of unveiling an object. That, that term and that word, that, you would, that they would unveil an object. So Paul's prayer for them for wisdom and re revelation in verse 17 is that they would be unveiled to the truth about who God is. That they, their minds, their hearts, that they would be opened. That the Holy Spirit would come and help them. So they would know him better. A true intimate relationship and knowledge of God. George Mueller might be one of the most famous orphan directors in the history of the world. And he's also one of the most famous prayer warriors in the history of the world, I would say. Because if you've read anything of his stories about prayer, you'd be amazed at what the Lord did in his life and for him and for the orphans. So what does, Paul, what does George Mueller have to do with what Paul's teaching here? No one, I think, knew God quite like George Mueller did. Many people try and many people will, but, but George Mueller, he knew God. And about God, he said this. The more we know God, the happier we are. When we become a little acquainted with God, our true happiness commenced. And the more we become acquainted with him, the more truly happy we become. What's, this is the key. What will make us so exceedingly happy in heaven? It will be the fuller knowledge of God. When you get to heaven, it's not going to matter anymore, the things of this earth. It's not going to matter anymore, the relationships and the, and the, the bad business deals that you had. It's not going to matter to you, the problems and the issues and the experiences that you've had. What's going to matter to you, and George Mueller, Mueller knows it well, and he's teaching us well, what will be exceedingly making us happy in heaven, it's going to be what Paul is praying for us to have a little bit of now. That we may know him better. 
Because it's going to be the full knowledge of God in heaven that's going to make all of our hearts so happy. That's what it's going to take. And so, if that's the purpose, if that's, if that's what Paul is suggesting as a request, as his request, what are the reasons then, what are the reasons for wisdom and revelation? What are the reasons for that? Why do we need it? What, what, are, they, what are the reasons? Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. The first reason is that we would know his call to hope. He makes a request for wisdom and revelation, and the first reason we can have wisdom and revelation is because of hope. Called as a reminder of what God has done, of no merit of our own, to call you to salvation. Hope in Scripture is a believer's absolute certainty that we have victory because of God. In verse 18, he uses that language. He uses that understanding that he wants them to have, he's praying for them that the eyes of their heart, isn't that interesting? Not the eyes of their brain, because the eyes of their brain would go back to what we talked about before. They would have an understanding. You see something, you have understanding of how it works. But he's not praying that they would have an understanding of God. He's not praying that they would have an understanding of the hope to which they called. He's praying for their heart. That their heart would be open, that they would know him. I pray that your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you. Paul is suggesting you might understand Jesus saved you. You might understand that there's hope from that. But if you truly felt it in your heart, oh, what a difference it would make in the lives of the believers. If you would truly experience the knowledge deep down inside of you that the Father, the Lord of heaven, sent his son to die on the cross for you and he called you by name to be his and your eternity belongs to him because of Jesus. That hope in scripture is the certainty that we need. And that's what Paul recognizes. He recognized. He, we did receive this hope in the past when we were called. And we will not fully know that hope into the future until we are in glory with Jesus. But in the meantime, Paul prays that we would know God's call to hope. That we would know his call to hope. And not only his call to hope, but we would know his rich inheritance. See? Verse 18, following that part about knowing the hope to which he has called you, says, we also want to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. There's three points because you can see quite plainly in that structure in verse 18. He prays that your hearts may be enlightened and that you may know 
What three things? The hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glory inher- glorious inheritance in the people, and I'm not going to go there yet because I don't want to get past myself in my sermon, but those, those are the three things you see. You can see that in language with the commas there in the Bible. He's praying that they would have these reasons to know. Know is called the hope. Know is rich inheritance. His, to- his rich inheritance is twofold. Talking about the rich inheritance and his holy people, Paul is talking about two things there. The fact, first of all, that we are God's inheritance. He has all the riches of the world. He has everything he could possibly want. He has all the power. God has all the rule. He has all the dominion in this world. And God cares about one thing. What deeply concerns him and the passion that he has is his rich inheritance. The believers, the saints. That's what he concerns himself with. So it's twofold. It's about God's rich inheritance, us. And it's also referring back, Paul's also referring back to the rich inheritance we learned about in 1 through 14. It's about God's inheritance and ours. Combined. What's the reason for wisdom and revelation? How, how can we so want to know God in our heart? Paul says, you know how, what can help you know God in your heart? Knowing that God counts you as a priceless piece of art. And unlike William Hurst, his art's, his art's not buried down in the basement, trapped in some box where God forgets about it. You are on display in glory as Jesus' glorious inheritance. Even now. Even now, Jesus considers you to be his artwork, his masterpiece. The way in which he expresses and shares his glory. I think Paul's recognizing something here. If you lived and you knew in your heart that you were God's artwork displayed for his glory, that would help you to know him better, to want to know him better, to desire to know him better. And then, the double meaning, it would, it would help you to want to know his riches better. To know your inheritance better. Why would we not want to know that God? What else is he giving to me? That's one big blessing that I'm his and he treasures me. But what else does he give me in the scripture? What else is there in his inheritance? What else can we learn about? We've been looking at 1 through 14. We would want to know him better. And Paul recognizes that. And that's why he prays for them. He's praying for them that they would acknowledge. Not just have an understanding but know it in their heart. And the last thing many of you who are good at filling in the notes ahead of time found out already, that we would know his power. That we would know his power. He wants us to know the call to hope. He wants us to know his rich inheritance. And he wants to know us to know his power. Verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. If you knew the power that would help you to know 
God better. What is the power? He answers it. He goes on a tangent. He gets so excited about the power that God has that he blesses you with that he goes on a tangent to to finish explaining that. And that's the most exciting part. And it's the most exciting part in the passage that some of us need reminded of this morning. Look at what he says. What's the power? It's this, verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What power can we have? What power should we know? What power is ours to know deep down? Our power, the power is the power of the cross. The most glorious power that exists. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul, in his mind, desires the believers in Jesus Christ not just to understand that Jesus died for them, Not just to understand that because Jesus died for them, now they have a way to gain access to heaven with God. He wants them to know that so deeply that it impacts their daily life. You're doing a good job, he tells them. You're you're staying on track Now continue to stay on track. And the way you can continue to stay on track, 1 Corinthians lays it out. You know, for the people around us in the world, the cross is foolishness. It means nothing to them. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, it's the power of God. And it means everything to you. Everything. It impacts the way we live. It impacts the way we think. It impacts who we are. And that's what Paul wants to bring out in Ephesians chapter 1. When you know that power belongs to you, and you know the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that, that brought him off the cross, that when he died for your sins, when you know that power is yours, and you know that well, it changes the way you live. It changes who we are. His power exerted in Christ, you know, 20 through 23. I don't sidetrack from my message, but but look at this. Uh, I'll give you three things that that he's sharing there. His power exerted in Christ on the cross. His power when he placed all things under Christ's feet. And his power when he placed Jesus as head of the church. Those are the three powers that are listed there in those verses. His power over death, his power to give control 
to himself and his power over the church, over my life, over your life, that power. All of this this morning um, reminds me of my couch. This is a picture I took this week of my couch preparing for the sermon. And someone lost something that they thought was at my house. And so I, I went through every single nook and cranny looking for that item. And I opened up this couch. I'm thankful to the Lord that this picture isn't like blown up in huge high def. Um, but maybe it's big enough for you to see. You can't really see all the crumbs and the things. I looked in the couch cushion and I thought, how is all of this here? <laughs> and I looked at this couch and I thought, wow, how long, ha how long has some of this been here for? <laughs> but the problem with the couch is this. I mean, it's really messy. I know you can't tell, but it needs a vacuum job really, really bad. I mean, there's like full crumbs. Must be from Graham. <laughs> Wouldn't be for my late night snacking. There's full crumbs in there. But you know what? The problem with the couch is this. Because the couch and what's underneath the cushions is out of my sight, I ignore that mess. I don't really think about it. And I don't consider what's happening in there, but it doesn't change the fact that all that mess is still in there. And as a matter of fact, guess what? I haven't changed anything about it. It's still there. You want to come see it? Come over after church today. We'll look at it together. It's still there. It's still in there. But Paul here is reminding us the same. You might have an idea of how God richly blessed you, but do you know it in your heart? I have an idea that that stuff's in my couch, but do I do anything about it? Does it make a difference to me? Does it change who I am? Does it change the way I live every single moment of my life? Absolutely not. So when Paul is preaching to them here, when he lays out those points for prayer and wisdom, when he lays out those points of why he wants them to know the hope to which they called, to know their glorious inheritance in Christ, to know God's power, the reason he's saying that and the reason he's praying that is because he wants it to impact how they daily live. I don't have an estimate of Christians in the world. But if 100% of the Christians of this world lived like they knew him, what a radically different world this would be. What's the proof? What's the proof? Guys like George Mueller, who knew him well, who knew the Savior, and made an impact for his kingdom. People in your life who have taught you, who have loved you, who have served you. People who have known God well and they've known in their heart that he's all that matters in this world and they've made an impact on your life. They've encouraged you. They've helped you. 
Some of you who know Christ well and you know it makes a difference in the way you live. Some of you who know that it has an impact on your life and you're allowing God to use you. But there's some of us here today, and I'm included, where sometimes we treat these rich blessings like I treat my couch. I don't need that right now. I bury it. I don't need to understand who God is right now. I'm kind of busy. I bury it. I don't need to come clean the couch right now. I don't need to access that relationship with God where I know him so well because I have other things. But just like the couch and just like that famous art collector, what's, what's this truth behind those stories? It's embarrassing. It's, it's embarrassing that that man was looking for a piece of art that he already owned. That's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to me. I'm, maybe not to you, but it's embarrassing to me that the inside of my couch has so many foreign objects that I had no knowledge of at all. Paul's prayer and love and concern from his church is this. He doesn't want them to live life embarrassed. Embarrassed that they never really knew Jesus. Embarrassed that they never really knew him well. So he writes to them to encourage them. You know what? I can teach you all of the theology, all of the rich doctrine in the world, but if you don't take that time to prayerfully consider that you want to know God well with your life, nothing good will ever come. Because you can understand who God is. You can understand truths about God. You can understand the Bible. You can understand how it all works. But until you truly know God and let that impact your daily life, nothing else will matter. Paul's prayer then for our church is this. As you live out your faith by loving God and loving others, may God give you wisdom, not just in your head, but in your heart, to know him better. Bow in a word of prayer with me. Lord, I'm thankful for this church family. I'm thankful for their faith in you. Most, if not all, the people in this room, I believe, have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation. God, if there's someone here right now who hasn't, I pray they don't leave this morning without accepting you as their Savior, without understanding the facts. And God, this is a perfect morning for someone to accept Jesus for the first time. Because now if they accept Jesus for the first time, they went through this sermon with us all today, this morning, where we understand it's not just about accepting Jesus as your Savior, but it's about knowing him. Knowing who he is and making that have an impact on our daily life. God, if only, like George Mueller said, if we only knew a little bit about you, it would drastically change our heart and our mind. It would drastically change the way we live. God, I pray for this church family right here before me this morning. Help us to know you. Not just read our Bible to understand, but help us to know who you are, how you make a difference in our life. 
We ask you would fill us. You would come and help us. You would do that in us. God, someone here this morning will wrestle with that fact all week. Do I really know him? Help us know you. Help us live in a way that proves we know you. Don't let us bury the truth in the basement. Don't let us bury the truth under the couch cushion. Help us to live out the truth of your word every single day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.